I grew up in the church as a, as a young, young child. My folks uh, joined the church uh, that they still attend up in Indianapolis when I think I was just like a month and a half old. Uh, so, so for me, from early childhood, uh, church is all I have known. Um, there's a, a little bit of some pictures, right? Easter Sunday over there on the, the far left. Uh, then the picture on the right is me at daycare at the church. Um, then the two bottom ones um, are me as a, uh, as a teenager out in, in a mission trip and with my, my youth group. For a long time, uh, that's, that's all I knew. Um, church is all I have known from an early, early uh, childhood. I, I suppose you could say that I am a product of, of the church, and it's, it's love. At 12 years old, I made my decision to, to follow Christ. And, and by 16, I had felt the, the call into full-time Christian ministry to, to be a minister. And, um, because of this, I never really grew up with, with doubts about Christ. It was all I knew, right? Jesus was preached. He was taught to me. Uh, the, the songs were sung. The verses were memorized. I suppose I just always accepted God's word for what it is, God's word. After I graduated high school, I spent four years at a conservative Bible college where that was even more so ingrained into the DNA of who I am. Now, hear me out. I, I'm not saying that I don't have doubts. Uh, there were times in which I may have questioned things like, did Jesus... Was he really born in a manger? Or did God make all of this? Or if, if the world is so full of corruption and God is so all-powerful, why doesn't he, he take care of that? I did have questions or doubt, I suppose, but my faith background, they were always uh, easy to find answers for me. There was always this ability to trust, um, even maybe though I didn't fully understand yet. Now, while in college, I met my wife, Erin, uh, and we got married uh, heading into our junior year of college. And uh, we we uh, enjoyed our college years, and then we headed off uh, to Ohio, uh, back to her hometown, actually, where I served for four years as an associate minister at her uh, her home church. And when we got to Ohio, I rented a we rented a, a small little house uh, on the edge of town. Um, it was uh, supposedly the barn to the house just west of it. Uh, years and years and years before they converted the old barn into a house, it had six and a half foot ceilings. Um, so some of you guys in here would not have fit in our house. Uh, uh, I, I uh, could just touch the ceiling right when we walked in. And so for us, we called it the Hobbit House um, because a Hobbit could have easily lived there. Um, but but it, it symbolized some, some great things for us. It symbolized adulthood. Um, it was the beginning of our kind of adult lives. It was a special place because it was there that we found out Erin, uh, my wife, was pregnant with our first child. And in the midst of finding out that she was pregnant, we also found out that the house had some mold issues. So we put our search for our own home to buy a house on like fast track. We were going to go find a house, and, and we did. We found it. We bought it, and in December, just about a week and a half before Christmas, we were due to close and move in that, that weekend, and all went according to plan, and we uh, began to move our stuff over, loaded up trucks. It was a weekend full of moving and getting things over. There was an excitement about raising our, our, our first child there. We, we were excited about this adventure. Sunday evening, after everything had been unloaded and we were beginning to unpack boxes, my wife called me upstairs. She said, Evan, you can come here. I could tell something was wrong, but wasn't sure what, what exactly it was. So I headed up the stairs, and we then headed down the stairs and out the door and to the hospital to, to find out news that the first child that we had hoped to raise in this new house we had bought uh, would not be on this earth. 
that she had lost the child due to a miscarriage. Now, all of my life, I had been told of God's love, the joy of God, the hope of God, the goodness of God, these wonderful truths. I had seen those things lived out in my life, but in that moment, for really the first time, I truly doubted God. Why would he make two faithful people that were serving him in his church and doing gangs for the gospel to help others come to know uh, his truth? Why would he make that happen to us? Why why did we have to experience this pain, the joy of moving in, and then right at the midst of that, going through that that struggle? You know, over the the last couple weeks, we have been looking at a series called unconditional. We've looked at how Jesus is friend of the sinner and then how Jesus is friend of of the believer. And today we're going to come to um, the topic of Jesus as the friend of doubters. It's true. We've all doubted at some point in our life, whether large or small. We've wondered if God truly did come to this earth in the flesh as Christ. Did he really die and, and rise three days later? We, we've pondered questions about how this earth came to be and If God created it, well, where did he come from first? We've looked into the heavens, and we've thought of his return, and some of us may even doubt if that will happen. Or maybe for you, it's like me. In the midst of a tragedy, the loss of a loved one, or cancer, or or a heart attack, or an accident, or an addiction, or, or something else, you found yourself going, I don't know about this. This supposed God, I, I, don't, I doubt that he exists. I I think he's making this happen to me, or I'm frustrated at him. Because whether you are a a follower of Christ or not, or somewhere in between, we all have doubts. Yet in the face of these questions, we can turn to the Word of God, and we can know that God deals with doubters. Christ himself, when he was on this earth in the flesh, dealt with people who doubted. And we're going to look at a story that's found in the Gospels. It's actually found in three of the four Gospels. We're going to look at it in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. In Matthew chapter 14, if you want to turn there, it's going to start in verse 22. Let me set the scene a little bit, give you a little bit of background to this, this, this story. It's, it's fairly early on in the ministry of Jesus. Um, there's large crowds that have begun to to follow Jesus, um, begun to, to come to him and, and to look for healings and teachings. And, and, and so these crowds are coming, but Jesus is in the midst of a, a dark time himself. He has just gotten word that his cousin, John the Baptist, the one that prepared the way for him, has been beheaded um, uh, at the hands of Herod and his daughter Herodias. So, so here he is. He's got this news. Jesus wants to go away. He wants to spend some time in prayer. He wants to get away from this, this situation. So he, he leaves quietly in a boat. They head off towards a town called Bethsaida. But what happens is when they get to the town, they get to the shoreline uh, of Bethsaida, and they get out of the boat, the crowd's there waiting him. And, and they want to hear. They want to hear about what Jesus is going to teach them, and they want to see him. And the cool thing is, in the midst of, uh, of this, this dark time of his life, right, death is the ultimate consequence of sin. It's almost as if Christ is just saying, you know, I just want to make some things right. And he begins to, to heal people. And he does that throughout the day into the afternoon. And it's getting later and later and later in the day. And his disciples come up to me and they say, hey, Jesus, you know, we, we kind of, it's getting late, it's getting dark. Uh, the, the local Walmart's not open around here, right? There's no Walmart around here. We're in the boonies. And, and he's saying, we don't have any way to feed these people. There's no restaurants. There's nothing to get them food for, for them. So he says, why don't we send them home so they can go get their food and they can come back at another time. Jesus says, uh, time out. Let me see what I can do about this, right? He says, find what you can. And, and they find a, a young boy's lunch. 
five barley loaves, two fish, and he feeds 5,000 plus people with these five loaves and these two fish. Now, the gospel account of John um, hints towards the idea that now the crowd, after seeing him feed thousands after this day of healing, they want to make Jesus king. They want Jesus to lead a rebellion. Uh, They want uh, him to become the king, to rule over the government of that day. Uh, And Jesus is, in a sense, tempted with kingship again. I say again because this is something he's experienced before, right? He, in the desert, before his ministry began, he was tempted by Satan to be king, right? You can have all these, these lands that you, they're all be under your power, says the adversary. But Christ knew in that moment, and he knows in this moment right now, that he came for something more. He came for the cross, right? Christ came to trade his perfection for our imperfection. So Jesus decides to send his disciples away in a boat. He sends his disciples away because they may be buying into this truth too. Um, and he says, we got to get out of here. It's time to, to get away from the situation. So Jesus sends the 12 off, and he says, I'm going to go retreat. I'm going to go pray, uh, and I'll catch up with you later. Which is, it's, it's neat to see this of Christ, right? He wants to mourn the, the death of his, his cousin. He's being tempted with uh, the, the ability to become king, which he had the power to do it. And what's he do in those moments? In the midst of sorrow, in the midst of temptation, he goes away and he prays. And he spends some time up on the, on the mountain praying. And it says late in the evening, somewhere between, it says the fourth watch, which would be 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Um, it's late in the night. Um, he sees that his disciples are struggling. His disciples have been sent to the other side of the Sea of Galilee um, to a land called Capernaum. And he, he says, I see that they're struggling. They may have not got very far at all. It's likely that he actually saw them from the mountaintop. And he says, I see them struggling. I'm going to go to them. So here's his close companions, his friends, struggling through a difficult situation. Jesus comes to them. A good reminder to us in our struggles that Jesus comes to us. So he walks on water. That's the the story that we're looking at this morning. And he comes to them, and as he's walking on water, whether it's out of simple exhaustion or anxiety in the face of the storm, as Jesus approaches the boat, the disciples scream out in fear, it says thinking that the figure they're seeing is a ghost. Now, Mark points out that their amazement of this situation was because of their hearts had been hardened. They hadn't really understood the the feeding of 5,000. But here they are, screaming out in fear, and Jesus simply says, It is I. A statement that reminds us of his words to Moses, right? God's words to Moses at the burning bush, where he says, You're going to go, and you're going to do this in the name of... And he says, Who who am I going to do this in the name of? And he says, Tell him that I am sent you similar thing. Here's Jesus, sovereign over creation, standing on the water, and he looks out uh, at, his, uh, at his disciples, and he says, take courage, it is I. Now, both Mark and John's gospel accounts end right there with this story, and it talks about Jesus getting into the boat uh, and then going on elsewhere. The gospel of Matthew, though, tells us a little bit more about this story, and it tells us about Peter. It says, Peter replied to Jesus, if it's really you, Jesus, tell me to, to come out to you. And Jesus replies, come. Now, who knows what Peter's thinking, right? Foot in the mouth type of guy. He's the one that says something before he thinks about it. In any case, he asks to come walk on the water. I'm thinking that Peter was reliving the childhood dreams, right? We've all done it at the pool one day, right? He hopped off the diving board. Look at me, I'm walking on water. Before you plunge under the water's surface. And I think Peter might have been wanting to actually live that out. And he says, hey, can I come to you? And Jesus says yes. Now at that point, his knees start shaking a little bit. 
But Peter stands up, he steps over the edge of the boat, and he walks on water. The joy of realizing his childhood dream is quickly snuffed out with the boom of thunder and the beginning to look at the water, and he, he recognizes, I know I'm a fisherman. I've lived on these waters before. I've spent nights on the water, and I know one thing. You're not supposed to stand on water. And all of that quickly flashes through his brain, and he begins to doubt, and then he begins to sink. Now, Peter gets a bad rap here, Right? He's out on the water, he doubted, uh, he doubted Christ, he begins to sink. We all kind of give Peter a hard time for this, but I'm thinking, what about the other 11 guys that are whimpering in the boat about the ghost here, right? <laughs> I mean, come on, you got to give him a chance. Not to mention, right, Peter didn't flail his arms, he didn't try to swim back to the boat. No, it simply says that he said, Lord, save me. To which, that reply is met with the hand of Christ. He picks him up, he does share those words, you of little faith, why did you doubt? But then together they climb into the boat. The winds die down. The situation kind of comes to a calm ending. And it says the disciples recognize he as the son of God. Not just a miracle worker who could turn a small lunch into feeding thousands. Not a man that was going to lead a rebellion to become the, the next king of the land. But the true Messiah, full of compassion and love. One that was on a mission. True redemption of his creation. So here's this story of Jesus' closest companions as they walk this earth. His greatest followers in their moment of much doubt. They're struggling through this. So what can we learn? Well, I first think we can learn this, is that uh, those closest to Jesus have doubts. Those close to Jesus have doubts. You aren't the first to doubt, and you aren't the worst for your doubts. It's important to note that these aren't just anybody's in the boat that day, right? These are people that had walked many of days. Yes, I suppose you could argue early in Christ's ministry, but they had seen him turn water to wine. They had seen Jesus heal many by now. They'd heard him teach large crowds. Many of them had experienced personal miracles um, where you talk about the fishermen's. Put your net on this side, right? Their net is overfilled with fish that it breaks. These guys knew what it was like to see the power of who Christ was. Miracles and things that they had seen that we would say, if I just saw one of those, I would have no problem believing. There would be no doubt in my mind who Christ is. Yet while tossed by the waves of the sea, the same waves that Christ had sent them on, when a figure comes to them uh, in the water, they quake in fear. Let that reassure you that even the closest of Jesus' followers, of people of Christ, doubt at times. There was a young preacher who in his early 30s was asked to preach at a, a retreat center in California. Uh, pretty common for a preacher from time to time to be asked to speak at um, special events, and this was definitely no, not new territory for this young man. Um, he had just recently been out on the other side of the coast in Pennsylvania at, at another revival-like uh, uh, preaching experience. He said, that was a flop. He said it was bad, it didn't go well. He said we had hoped for people to turn their lives over to Christ, but it just seemed like there was a hardening of the hearts, and just was a, it wasn't a good thing. He said at the same time I was struggling, a close friend of his had begun to question who God was. He had said, I think the word is fallible. He said, I think academia is the way um, to, to this world's truce. And he said, so the first time uh, in as long as he could remember, he was questioned with doubt himself. He said, so I was asked to preach in the midst of my doubt, but he accepted the invitation. He went early to the retreat center, and he began 
to study, to study God's word. And he, as he did that, he said there was a passage of scripture that just kept coming out over and over and over again. It was, thus saith the Lord. It's common of the King James Version of scripture. You've, you've seen that before. Thus saith the Lord. He said it just came up over and over and over again in his study. And he said, from there I decided to, to put my books down, to take my Bible out. And I wa- he walked out into the, the forest that evening, set his Bible on a stump nearby. And he looked up into the sky and he said, oh God, There are many things in this book I do not understand. There are some seeming contradictions. There are some areas that don't seem to correlate with modern science. Some things that I can't answer. Philosophical and psychological questions that others are raising to me. But then the young preacher fell to his knees and he proclaimed, Father, I'm going to accept this as thy word by faith. And with that cry, Billy Graham began his powerful ministry for the gospel of Jesus Christ that reached hundreds, tens of hundreds of thousands of people. This morning, whether you are a follower of Christ or a child of God, or you're somebody that is just simply in the midst of doubt and you sit here looking amongst you and you go, I don't know about all this stuff, this, this faith, this Christ, this, this God. Let me tell you, it's all right to doubt wherever you are at. Because even those closest to Jesus had doubts. The question this morning is, in the midst of those doubts, in the midst of those moments, will you harden your heart? Will you say, you know what, I'm not going to give him a chance to prove himself. I'm not going to search out the word of God. I'm not going to go to my knees and pray about these things. Instead, I've I've already made up my opinion. Are you going to work out that faith with fear and trembling, as the scripture says? Because second, we learn this of, of doubt. Doubt will bring us fear, but Jesus will bring us courage. Children's natural instinct uh, when they lose mom and dad or they, they are lost and alone um, is to, to cry out, right? You remember this, right? You're, in a, chi- you're a child, you're in the, the big department store or in the large grocery store, um, and you get distracted by the toy that's on the end cap of the aisle. Or if you're like me, you got distracted by the donut cabinet in the end of the bakery. Um, and and you, uh, you, you, you turn around to gawk at that thing that you, you so, so want, like the jelly donut. Um, and uh, before you know it, you turn around and mom and dad is gone. What's your first instinct? Mom, dad, where are you at? Right? Or if you've had a child, a toddler before, you lay in bed and uh, lay them down for bed and then you're up still and you, you hear that whimpering cry they've just woke up from a bad dream and they go mommy daddy come here what do you do you go running to that child and rub their back you rock them in the chair and you put them back down to sleep in Matthew chapter 14 it says this in verses 26 and 27 when the disciples saw him walking on the lake they were terrified it's a ghost they said and cried out in fear but Jesus immediately said to them take courage it is I do not be afraid. Those 12 men reverted back to their childhood, right? They cried out in fear. Oh, man, I'm scared. Either they are really, really tired or they are just a bunch of weenies right here. Because I'm thinking, come on, there's 12 of you. One, there's only one of these things, right? Even if it, it is some sort of ghostly figure, you'd think they'd have a little bit of courage in their numbers. But they don't. They quake in fear, and Jesus says, take courage, it is I. Reminds me of what Moses is told in Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. It says, be strong, take courage, do not be intimidated, don't give them a second thought, 
Because God, your God, is striding ahead of you. He's right there with you. He won't let you down. He won't leave you. Just like you eventually found your parents when you got lost in the store, or just like you go running um, to that child when they've had that bad dream. The same is true of God. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, echoes to us that same truth. In your doubt, take courage. It is I. But third, we know this. In doubt, Jesus says, come close. In the Gospel of John, there's a story of a man by the name of Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is a powerful leader in that day. He's one of the the 72 uh, leaders uh, of the Jewish council, the council that would eventually um, see that Christ was uh, convicted and later crucified. Um, And here is Nicodemus. And Nicodemus has a little bit different heart than most of the other guys on on the council. He wants to, in a sense, he's curious. He wants to give Jesus a chance. We can, we can assume from what we hear of Nicodemus. Now, he had these questions, so he wants to go ask Jesus these questions. Could have easily done it in the middle of the day at any moment. Their path had crossed. Um, people in that day would have parted like the Red Sea if Nicodemus came to ask a question of Jesus um, because of uh, Nicodemus' um, high standing in, in, in the, the leadership there. Um, but Nicodemus don't want the other leaders to know. Right? So he decides, I'm going to wait until the, the dark of night, the cover of night, and I'm going to go secretly to ask Jesus my questions. Now what I love is, when you hear of this story, is that Jesus doesn't, uh, he doesn't condemn Nicodemus. He doesn't say, hey, why don't you just ask me during the day, buddy? He doesn't look at him with uh, condemnation, doesn't call him a coward. No, he just simply lets him come and ask his questions. The same is true of our story this morning, right? Peter? He stands up, hey, if it's you, Jesus, let me come. And he doesn't give Peter a hard time. No, he says, come. It's that simple, that we are called to to come to Christ in the midst of our doubt. He doesn't say, away from me, you coward, or ask your question and get it over. Shoot, he doesn't even look at Peter in that moment of doubt and say, hey, can't you see I'm walking on water right now, kind of performing a miracle, buddy? No, he says, come close. Maybe that means pressing into God through the study of his word, like Billy Graham did at that retreat center. Maybe it's like the psalmist who falls on bended knee and prays and pours out his heart as it does in Psalm um, 13. It says, how long, Lord? How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts day after day, have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer. Lord, my God. You see, I don't know what that looks like for you, but I do know that God clearly says to you the same thing that was said to Peter. Come, and come close. Because doubt is going to distract you, but Jesus is going to save you. As, as children, my family spent uh, many weekends in the summer going to uh, Redbrush. Um, it was a campground. I'm wondering if anybody knows what Redbrush is. Our service had, oh, good, I got one. That's the same thing I got at first service. So it's a campground in Seymour, Indiana, or was a campground in Seymour, Indiana. Uh, it had this big amusement park off to the side, or little amusement park. I guess it was big to me as a kid. Um, and then this lake, and it had all these water uh, things you could do, water rides and stuff. Um, I don't remember tons of it. It was when I was really, really little. But I do remember hearing my dad's friends recall this story of him. 
they, we had went out for a, a family trip, and some friends had come along, and all the dads had decided they were going to swim out to this big wooden tower that was out in the middle of the lake, and they were going to do this big rope swing, off the rope swing into the, the depths of the water. So they all swam out there, and they climbed up, and right, if you've ever done a rope swing, you're supposed to get on the rope, and at the high point, you're supposed to let go, and off into the water. So dad climbs up, got the rope, and off he went, and he said, right as I got to the high point where I was supposed to let go, I said, all of a sudden, all the doubt crept in, and I got really scared, and he said, I held on, and he said, I remember swinging back, and his buddies recall, they said, you gotta let go, you gotta let go, and he said, Boom, I let go and slapped back into that tower and slid lifelike, lifelessly down the bottom of the tower. He said it was all I could do to stay afloat. But as we recall a story like that, we recognize that doubt does distract us from what we should do. It gets us off course, and in a sense, figuratively, we come flying back in and slap against that wall and slide down it, and it's hard, all we can do to stay afloat. And is that not true of the story that we read of this morning? right? Peter, he gets out of the boat. Now, Peter is the only other person other than Christ that can actually say they walked on water, albeit a short time. He did walk on water, right? And here he is. He's walking on water, and before he knows it, he, he's beginning to think all those things, and he trembles a little bit, and he begins to sink, and it's all he can do to stay afloat. But Jesus reaches out his hand and saves Peter. You see, in your doubt, you will be distracted, The adversary may use things like fear and frustration. He's going to use things like pain and sorrow. He's going to throw temptations that are easy for you to say yes to in your life. He's going to try at every cost to get you to think that there's no way out, that you are in the darkest of pits. You are going to begin to slowly sink, and it's going to be all you can do to stay afloat. For some of you this morning, you look at me and you say, you know what, I'm already sunk. But I love what the psalmist says. In Psalm 40, he says, You lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, and you set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. You see, our doubts um, will distract us, but Jesus will save us. He will give us a strong place to stand on. Which leads to the final point. Our doubts will prove Jesus to us. You know, Peter and Jesus, they climbed back into the boat, and his, uh, all the disciples sitting there that day said, truly he is the Son of God. That's the first time that that term is used in the gospel accounts. Truly he is the Son of God. From doubt, to hardened hearts, to fear, to the sinking in the depths of the sea, to, man, he's the Son of God. You know, it's almost been four years since my wife and I walked the dark road of doubt when she miscarried. We've been blessed. We were blessed three months later when uh, we found out that she was pregnant again, uh, and a pregnancy that would have never happened for without that miscarriage. And today we have a, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed little girl named Eliana. It means God has answered, her name does. And for us, uh, in that moment, in that dark time of the year of December, uh, struggling through this, this thing as we had just moved into this house, questioning and doubting God, peace came over us. For the first time, I understood what the Apostle Paul meant when he said in Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, will transcend, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
my doubt would eventually prove to me his existence. Peace, peace like I have never, ever experienced before. Peace that my wife and I could share together. Peace in the midst of a dark, dark time. Peace that has come to us three more times as we've lost three more child, children to before they were, they were born. Proof that he's sovereign. Proof that God is good. Proof that God is, is God. This morning, I'm not sure where you're at. For you, maybe you have always doubted. It's always been there. You've always had the question. You've always had, in a sense, a little bit of a calloused heart to God. But something lately has been stirring in you. Your heart's beginning to soften. You're beginning to wonder, what exactly does it mean to truly be a, a follower of Christ? In just a moment, we're going to sing a song of invitation. And As Christ said to Peter, let me say it to you. Come. Matt and Tom will be over here by the baptistry. Yeah, I'll be here to pray. If you have those questions, I want to say, say come. Or for you, maybe you've recognized those truths this morning. And over the past several weeks, you've been like Graham, who, who, who decided, you know what? I'm just going to have faith in the things that I'm not sure about re- just yet. And I'm ready to take that next step of, of faith. I'm ready to give my life over in baptism. I'm ready to repent of my sins and, and to walk with Christ. Let me tell you this morning, come. Or maybe you're like me. You grew up in the church. It's all you've known. For a long time, you have just known it as this is what it is, but something's happened lately. A dark time in your life, a struggle of temptation that you have fallen to over and over and over again, or it's a, a situation like cancer or pain or the loss of a loved one. And for the first time, you've truly doubted who God is. And you just want to pray. You want to pray for clarity. You want to pray for renewal. You want to pray for for peace. Let me tell you, come. Whatever that might be this morning, know that Jesus is the friend of doubters. He said it so very clearly in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. It says, ask, it'll be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. You know, if you had to paraphrase that passage, I'd say something like, come, come to me. I'm going to pray, and then we are going to sing this song of invitation, and I'm going to encourage you to, if you want to come and pray at these steps, if you want to come and talk with uh, someone over here by the baptistry, or you want want me to pray with you, I'd love to do those things. Uh, But most of all, Christ is beckoning you.